Internationally renowned BBC journalist Martine Croxall did not follow the traditional path into journalism, but that hasn't stopped her becoming one of BBC News' most respected and popular presenters. Never one to pass up an opportunity for a nose, Sunshine Hospital Radio's Andrew Reid accepted Martine's offer of a chat and a tour of BBC New Broadcasting House in London. We present, and now the news, in conversation with Martine Croxall. Welcome to In Conversation, and here we are in your eerie in the depths of the BBC. Yes, welcome to uh, my workspace, which is Studio E, a new broadcasting house. It's taken us a while to set this up, but I'm glad you finally got it. This studio, then, it's so much smaller than, than I, I imagined it would be. Yes, this is the sort of goldfish bowl, which has the uh, clear glass onto the newsroom, and it looks so much bigger and sort of sweeping when you see it on TV, and then everybody says when they come in, gosh, isn't it small? And then when you sit in on watching output, how quiet it is as well, because of course you're just hearing the presenter's voice rather than it being amplified through a microphone. So let's explore how you got from your childhood in Leicestershire. How did you set yourselves out on the path to arrive here at what is the pinnacle of, of news broadcasting at the BBC? Well, well, I'd love to say that there was a plan. Um, but I don't think there really was. I mean, I wanted to be a vet to begin with, and then I got to 15 and I thought, gosh, I don't think I'm actually going to get the grades to go to university to be a vet. So what do I like doing? Well, I like making things, I like projects, and I was relatively creative. And then thought, wouldn't it be fun to make radio programmes? I had no intention of ever being on air. I did not want to utter a single word into a microphone, be it on radio or television. So I went off to university and I wrote for the student newspaper a little bit. I was at Leeds. I went off travelling after university, came back and thought, really better get on with trying to see whether broadcasting was for me or not. Because if it hadn't have been, I don't know what I'd have done. So thank goodness I, I liked it and took to it. So I called up uh, my local radio station, which was BBC Radio Leicester, and they just said, yeah, come in. And in those days, you could actually start a career by volunteering what they call them interns these days but you were really just a, you know, a volunteer and for a few weeks of course I didn't earn any money because I didn't know anything and I hadn't got any skills but uh, they were very good to, to show me the ropes and then one day I'd be working on a program called Talkback which was the phone-in program and I literally started off making the tea and answering the phone and doing bits of filing and the newsroom was pretty quiet one day and the producer said to me we've got to cover the launch of a fundraising campaign to plant a national forest in Leicestershire, Derbyshire, Staffordshire. You've got to go and cover the launch down at the clock tower. And I just said, no, I am not doing that. And they said, well, there's nobody else to go, so you're going to have to. I was terrified. I was so worried about it. They sent me with an engineer to literally switch on a piece of equipment that had an on, off and standby switch. I was so anxious about it. They sent me with an engineer. It was a piece of kit called a Wood and Douglas. It's like a huge handbag that you could broadcast from if you were close to a transmitter in the city. Anyway, I went down there and the first person I interviewed was a man dressed as a tree in a rubber costume. And um, it was You never forget your first interview, do you? don't. In fact, it was such a peculiar looking um, spectacle that it ended up on the cover of the BBC's internal magazine called Ariel. <laughs> Uh, but I made a good stab at, at it, and uh, you know I felt that I was able to talk 
to the listener individually mm -hmm. and describe what was going on. And I enjoyed it. I, that surprised me more than anything. And so then they trained me to use the radio car. And I spent the first six months somewhat back to front with my broadcasting. Most people start off doing recorded things. Oh, no, not me. Um, so I spent six months travelling around Leicestershire and Rutland broadcasting live from the, from the radio car, which was a fantastic way to begin because it really made you sort of think on your feet. And you know what it's like in, in local radio. There aren't many resources. You haven't got a lot of money. So you, get, you learn how to make programming on a shoestring. So that was how it got started. Even more so in hospital radio, yes, I tell I you. Bet, yeah. <laughs> Had you ever done any type of non-broadcast um, radio, and by that I mean any hospital student, no. nothing, nothing at all, at so all. you went no, straight when I in? I was at Leeds University, which is a long time ago now, we, didn't, we had a student newspaper, but we didn't have a radio station. And then they have TV there now, and I go and talk to the journalism students um, sometimes when they invite me back. But no, we didn't have anything like that at all. So that's, that, and you know what this feels like, that moment where you first sit at a radio <laughs> desk and you open that microphone and it's all on you to speak is terrifying. And your voice doesn't sound anything like you imagine your voice will no. sound. and it changes a lot over the years as well. Mm. Um, it develops like, like, you know, if you use any sort of muscle, it will develop. And my voice is certainly a lot, I think, deeper than it would have been when I was in my early 20s. And that's just, that, just through sheer use and also... I'm not panicked anymore. The anxiety, thankfully, has left me. So from Radio Leicestershire, it was then, was it a hop, skip and a jump into regional television? The BBC has this fantastic system of, of attachments where you're seconded to another part of the BBC to learn the ropes. And you applied just like a job for a job. And in my case, there was a really good system that they had where the four local radio stations in the eastern region, the East Midlands, not the eastern region, the East Midlands, um, Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire, Lincolnshire and Leicestershire, each year they take a journalist from the, the, the local radio stations to East Midlands today for three, four months to learn the ropes of TV. And then you go back to your home station, hopefully having learned a few skills. And then I, I went back to Radio Leicester and within about six weeks, I'd got a job in television working at BBC Elstree, which was my first permanent job in television. And when I joined there, it was an extraordinary place to work, because in those days, our newsroom backed onto what was the playground of Grange Hill. You'd hear Ricky and Bianca from EastEnders having an argument outside the other window. And our reception area frequently used to turn into the A&E department of Holby City. And so you'd have ambulances turning up and you'd have prosthetic chests with knives sticking out of them being wheeled down the corridors. And I remember one day as well, I uh, said hello to this man that I thought I knew. And it turned out it was Robbie Williams who turned up to record Top of the Pops. And of course you realise you don't actually know them. And then one day I had to have a photograph taken and uh, the, the photographer said to me, just take a step through that little door. And there was a very skinny door and it was where the balcony that uh, Waldorf and Statler from the Muppets used to sit when it was when the, that show was made there as well. So it was steeped in lots of history and uh, a very interesting place to, to work. But I was part of the BBC uh, Newsroom South East team, which was the half-hour programme in the evening for the South East and London in those days. And um, I was very fortunate that one day... I think I'd only been there about eight days 
and I got a phone call late one night from a colleague saying, um, you're on tomorrow morning. I said, no, I know I am. I'm producing the breakfast bulletin. She went, no, you're presenting it. So I was just in the right place at the right time. And that, that's how my TV presenting started. That was in 1997. So really, you've built your experience more through taking the plunge than any <laughs> planned route. Well, it was always <laughs> more about what I didn't want to do yeah. than what I did want to do. Yeah. And so I always think, you know, don't mess people around by applying for jobs in places, doing things that you don't really want to do. And I had three amazing years there where I did lots of uh, reporting as well. I was a broadcast journalist and you know, I did everything that there was to do, whether it was producing in the field, producing at desk, and reporting and presenting. And I had three years there. And then I moved to Television Centre to present in a programme called UK Today, which you might remember, which has had a little uh, place on a digital satellite before all of the uh, regional programmes had their own space. We were a sort of a half-hour um, amalgam of uh, all the offerings from around the, the nations and regions. And then I joined uh, the BBC News Channel in 2000 and spent quite a lot of time actually on BBC World doing overnight shifts. So I clocked up a lot of international news experience as well. When you're on an overnight shift, I'm assuming that we're looking around us at the newsroom now and this is full. You know, there, there's very few spare seats here. You see that view behind you at one o'clock in the morning and there's very few people there. How lonely does that feel? Um, well, in this studio that we're sitting in, less so, I suppose, because you do have this window and you can see people behind you. This studio is an amazing studio for breaking news. And although you can't hear your colleagues behind you, somehow you know that they're there and they're all working with you to keep you on air and to, to make the best output possible. Generally speaking, in here, um, on a quiet shift, you'll just be here with your uh, floor manager, who at the moment is Caroline, who keeps me safe, and is to make sure that uh, nobody sort of trips over the various uh, hazards that are in the way. And she brings in um, guests or sets up correspondents if they're coming in to make sure that they're properly microphoned up and sitting in the right place. Um, brings cups of coffee from time to time as well if, you, if, you, if you're lucky and runs all the scripts to make sure that you've got those bits of paper because AutoCube does break quite often and you really do need those bits of paper people think they're just for set dressing but you do rely on them quite often as, as, as brilliant as our AutoCube operators are and it is one of the most difficult jobs in the building and if I'm right in saying I think on the fifth night that you were doing an overnight shift here you had four consecutive breaking news stories at the how same time. do you know that? Yes. How, how do you cope? Well, that was when we were still at the old building at Television Centre, which we left about five and a half years ago. Yeah, I, I went to work for BBC World, and just before I was going on air at one o'clock in the morning, um, it was my fifth shift. That's amazing research, Andrew. There was a, a bomb had gone off in Tel Aviv. Uh, the Royal family of Nepal had been massacred in the palace in Kathmandu. A number of, I think it was 200 people who had been taken hostage by the Abu Sayyaf rebels on Absilan in the Philippines. You see, it's seared in my mind all mm. these years later. I can still remember what they were. And there were a group of children whose mother had been taken into care by social services in Idaho who were holding up FBI agents at gunpoint. So there were all these four very different live continuous stories uh, that all happened at the same time. 
And I remember um, the editor of the night, he said to me, are you going to be okay? And I said, I don't know. Let's just hope so. And it's, it really is testament to the, the people behind you, the, those producers and the directors and the people in the galleries, all the, you know, the pr production operations uh, colleagues and, and uh, pr people out in the newsroom who keep you on air. And presenters should never forget that because you're, you're just the gatekeeper of you're the spokesperson for all the work that everyone else yeah, is doing. it's a huge privilege to do this job. It really is. Um, because you work with such incredibly talented people. I mean, the night that I was on, the night of the Paris attacks in November 2015, it was a Friday night. You come into work, you think you know what you're going to be doing, your running order looks a certain shape, you're going to be doing this story and that story and interviewing this person. And then suddenly something breaks somewhere in the world. I mean, Paris obviously not that far away from, from us here, but um, everything gets thrown out of the window and all your running orders just disappear in front of you and you start from scratch. Well, the approach that you took to that programme has been praised by David Henderson of CBS Network, mm. whose quote said you presented it free of drama, there was no shows, showbiz hype, and it was lacking the tawdry behaviour we endure from many newscasters in America. That must make you feel very proud because David Henderson is an award-winning journalist the other side of the pond. Yes, it's extremely uh, generous praise from him. And he did get in touch with me afterwards to ask me a little bit about how, you know, how we operate and, and to ask me a bit about the kind of work that we do. I just think on a night like that, in some ways, um, they, they are in some ways the, the easiest stories to tell it is the who what when why of journalism you you pair it right back to the very beginning what are your sort of first principles because you you're starting from scratch you don't know what's going on you're trying to make sense of it it will change over the hours that you're on air and it's about listening to what people are telling you and working out what you can actually verify and i hope well, I know one of the reasons that the BBC remains trusted, and of course we get criticised for things we do, yes we do, but the trust that we still enjoy um, I, is because we try to be accurate at all times. And that trust is worldwide? Yes, I mean, I, I think the BBC brand abroad is an, is an, an extraordinary thing. I've been to places where you don't have much language in common and people see BBC written on the piece of equipment that you're using and they immediately say World Service or World TV. Uh, and also, of course, our, our website reaches around the world these days as well. When you're covering a, a story that it particularly involves children, now you've got two children, yeah. how can you keep your emotions in check and still continue to do that professional job? I think it's because you come in here no and no matter how you feel, whatever life is going, what's going on for you in life outside of work, you come in here to do a job. And it's not our job to tell other people how to feel. It's our job to try to tell people as accurately as we can what's happening. And yes, of course, we interview people with opinions or expertise for analysis, and we try to be balanced about that. And that's expected of us because we need to be impartial too. But it's when you go home that you reflect on what you've been reporting. And sometimes, of course, you are reporting on it for hours on end as if it's a breaking story. London Bridge attacks also happened on a, a night that I was on air. And 
it does get under your skin. But you, I don't know what it is about being in the studio, you, you realise what your role is, what your responsibility is. So I do think about things when I get home, and sometimes it stops you from going to sleep, I have to say it does, but um, I'm not in here to, to fall apart. But there are always the lighter stories, and those must actually be pleasant to report and give you a little bit of a breather amongst what we do tend to see is a lot of doom and gloom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in one of the battlefield villages, so when uh, Richard III's body was found in the car park in Leicester, and there am I steeped in this story, having grown up in that part of the world and followed the, the story from the, from the beginning, I got to go back to Leicestershire twice for the Sunday before he was reinterred when his body was taken on a gun carriage around the battlefield villages, and then for the reinterment at Leicester uh, Cathedral. That was a, you know, a, a joyful thing to report on. I mean, quirky as you like. I mean, it's such a bizarre story, you know, a long dead king found under a car park. It could really only happen in the UK, think, a story yes, like yes, that. Yes, absolutely. And um, that was such a lovely thing to be able to do because there was there was history in it and there was you know the chances of it happening were you know it should never he should never have been found should he so yeah you have to find those sort of the light and shade where you can of course i present the news the paper review the papers on a on, a, on an evening at half past 10 half 11 and we have a couple of guests who come in and that there's room there for a bit of levity I mean, you still deal with serious subjects you have to know when to when to stop um it's, it's about tone. If you get the tone wrong as a presenter, people will notice and they will rightly complain. So we've uh, come down two floors to B3, which means three floors underground. We're a long way down. We are a long way down. Um, and we're down where the tube trains run. And so when this was uh, built, they had to have a lot of packing around it so that you could didn't sort of rock and shake and tremble when the tubes, the tubes running. But um, and soundproofing, I would imagine. Yes, as absolutely. Well. So God. it cost us some money to do that. Yeah. Um, so we're in what's uh, called a virtual studio, and when you first walk in, what hits you is the sheer amount of green. Uh, the floor is green. The walls are green. And what's so amazing about this is you can turn it into whatever you want to turn it into virtually. So. When you're in here, all you see is uh, these emerald-coloured walls. Mm -hmm. But you can, uh, thanks to you know clever graphics, uh, you can make it whatever you want it, want it to be. And there are a number of uh, four, in fact, um, remotely controlled, very heavy-duty cameras, which sometimes for big sweeping shots you will have an actual human being to operate. <laughs> but often they will move at n with no notice because they're they're controlled remotely. Uh, this studio gets used for all sorts of big set-piece, um, clever graphics uh, output. The election programmes, things like that, it's potentially. It's that kind of studio which would be used for, for the, in, a, in a place uh, like this, yes. Um, I used to present in here every weekday evening at 9 o'clock, so did Clive Myrie, um, when we did our own 9 o'clock hour, but that's now done by BBC World as part of our uh, efforts to bring more international news mm -hmm. to our domestic audiences. So this is the floor on which there are a number of different studios and um, the Victoria Derbyshire programme comes from a studio down here which is also shared with Andrew Marr 
and Newsnight. So are the days of the camera operator numbered? No, they're just used differently. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of uh, cameras these days which are operated remotely, but then who are they operated by? They're mm. operated by a lighting and vision specialist uh, who sets the shots, offers those shots to, to the director. Uh, we still do need a human being to operate these cameras if you want a, a, a big, dramatic, sweeping shot because you can't push it around remotely fast enough or with that sort of dexterity that a human being can bring. Um, and also out on the road, if you're out with a, doing an outside broadcast, you will always have at least mm. one camera operator with you. And there is a real skill, and we, we call them the sort of the craft skills of, of editing, of graphics, of, of, of shooting pictures. Increasingly, journalists are asked to do some of their own work in that way. But if you, if you want something doing really properly, you, are, you ask a professional, you ask a specialist. And the skills are still there to, to ask. The BBC is promoting those skills. It's still bringing people in and training them. Yes, very much so. I mean, there's been a period of expansion because we've had, we have so many studios here compared with when we were at Television Centre for news, mm. that you need plenty of production operations uh, colleagues to actually get you on air. And, never, that's, and that's before you think about the IT specialists and the electricians who fix stuff that I, you know it would never happen if it were left to people like me who just, you know, I can stand and read, but <laughs> I, I couldn't actually fix a problem if, if we had one. You were quoted a number of years ago now as actually wanting to do a bit more radio. Has that occurred would you do you see yourself going back doing more radio or are you happy now with the television no, I, I would radio? like to do some more radio and I did a couple of years ago I did some um, presenting on world service a program called um, OS outside source there's a television equivalent of it on the news nine o'clock at night um, in the weekdays but um, there's a they started off as a radio program and it's that still continues and it's presented from the middle of the newsroom, so you have all that hubbub of, of people working around you to give it that sense of you know being right there on the, on the shop floor, uh, and that was great fun. I really enjoyed doing that. It was an hour long, and um, it was great to get back to doing some radio. So yes, if if the opportunity came to do more, I would definitely take it. But you're quite happy at the BBC News Channel I'm at the moment. Very happy at the BBC News Channel. Yes. <laughs> well, there's certainly an awful lot of green here. So should we? <laughs> So we've moved a few yards away from that emerald palace of the virtual studio into Studio B, which is quite a big space compared with the others that we've it been It is. To. It's noticeably bigger. Yeah, and you can hear that um, they're playing around with sound and you can hear clips and music and um, running in the background. Um, this studio has got sort of two areas to it, a soft area and a hard area, and it's where the Victoria Derbyshire programme comes from on, in the news channel in the mornings. It's where Andrew Marr comes from at the weekend, uh, news nights as well, and uh, Focus on Africa, which is one of our um, world offerings. Uh, and the, the, the amazing thing about this studio is the lighting rig. If you look above, how absolutely extraordinary that rig is. I mean, and hundreds of light, lights that are up there. I've never seen anything know, quite it like is, that. It is incredible. I mean, this um, is more than you get in a West End theatre, isn't it? it? I mean, I'm yes. guessing the... The, the, the colour schemes and the coordination they can do with those lighting is yes. second to none. And around the sort of walls of the studio, you've got all of these different light boxes, and you can change the colours of those light boxes to so according to the sort of house style, the branding of the programme. Mm -hmm. 
So with Newsnight, it's sort of purples, and we can see the oranges for Focus on Africa. It's blue for Victoria Derbyshire. So you can change the look and feel of the studio in one space and make it work for lots of different output. And we've just gone from yellow to red. Yeah. Somebody's obviously listening. Changing things about. And it's all very of these, good. These sort it's of a shame it's radio. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Need to describe it. Um, we also have this incredible sort of jib camera here, which has a very long arm, looks like a crane, uh, which takes incredible amounts of skill to operate. It's got some heavy weights like you'd find in a, in a, a weightlifting room on the end of it to counterbalance it. And that gives you some lovely big high shots that you sometimes see on the Derbyshire programme. Um, and then all the way around the walls are these uh, plasma screens, which you can, again, you can run all sorts of different video in them. You might want to put the weather forecast in there, or you, you might want to run a, a VT. Um, so it's a very versatile space, and uh, it takes a lot of people to crew it. When a programme is on, how many could we see here? Um, I would probably be, if I'm presenting the Victoria Derbyshire programme, which I do from time to time, you'd, I'd be conscious of probably 8 to 10, 12 people milling around, some of them very vis visibly. So, you know, your floor manager again, your camera operators. Um, but then there are also people who deal with the sets and you have to have, to have electricians down here who are bringing, um, you know, kit in and out and making sure it's safe and will actually work. Uh, how much is being fed to you through your earpiece? It depends on what's happening. So you, some directors are more chatty than others. Mm -hmm. Some are very quiet. Um, some people, some like to talk a lot or swear or shout or rant and rave, <laughs> depending on how hectic it's become. But um, when it's very busy, you'll be getting more information in your ear telling you what's coming up next, mm -hmm. pointing you towards a, a new piece of copy that's just landed that they're probably sending to you on your computer. Um, so it can get quite lively, but then sometimes if you're with a really experienced team of people who know you really well and you know them, it's actually surprisingly quiet and people just trust each other to do the right thing. Well, for the first time in my life, I'm having the wind-up from the stage <laughs> manager. Um, Martine, thank you so much for joining us on the programme. I wish you continuing success. I, I dare not guess where we'll see you next because your career is going up and up. But it's been an absolute pleasure. And again, thank you for um, inviting us into what can be described as probably the world's best newsroom. Thank you. Thank you. BBC's Martine Croxall was in conversation with Sunshine Hospital Radio's Andrew Reid. The programme was recorded at BBC New Broadcasting House in London. In Conversation is a Sunshine Hospital Radio production.